I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14, uh, or Mark, Mark chapter 12. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Mark chapter 12. I really appreciated uh, Zach preaching last week while we were gone. Uh, we had a, a great time in Seattle uh, with our, our daughter and our family. All of our children were able to be there, uh, and all of our grandchildren, and we our daughter got married a year ago, uh, but it was during COVID and they could only have a few family and friends and this time they invited all their family and friends and so it was a, a wonderful time and um, appreciated Zach preaching last week. Uh, the place where we're at in Mark, in Mark chapter 12, is uh, Holy Week. We actually started uh, back in chapter 11. Uh, starts with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that's the beginning of Holy Week. And it ends with his crucifixion on Friday and then the resurrection on Sunday. And so on your outline at the top of it, you have this, that Jesus has recently entered Jerusalem to the shouts and the applause of the people. A couple of days later, he enraged the religious leaders by cleansing the temple. The tension grew worse as he embarrassed them in a public showdown over the source of John the Baptist's ministry and his own, what Zach looked at last week. Now he will inflame their hatred even more with a parable that exposes their evil hearts and their long-intended goal to destroy him. So if you look down in verse 37, of uh, Mark 12, it says that the large crowd enjoyed listening to Jesus teach. Uh, Jesus held the attention of the people that he spoke to because he was God, he spoke with authority. But he also spoke in parables, and he told stories that people could understand, and, and, and those stories had a heavenly meaning. And they were easier for people to understand and then live out in their own lives. And there aren't a lot of parables in the Gospel of Mark. Only about a third of the number of parables uh, are in Mark that are in Matthew or Luke. Uh, the last time Jesus told a parable, you have to go all the way back to Mark chapter four. Uh, to, so that, gee, there aren't many parables, I think like eight parables in all in the Gospel of Mark. So the ones that he does give are really important. So why the story about a vineyard? Uh, just in preface to reading the story itself, there are a couple of reasons. One, there are vineyards everywhere in Israel. If you go to Israel, uh, it's not, you don't have to go long before you see terraced land among the hills and, and vineyards. And it was an analogy that was used in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Isaiah 5, but you've got some other references there in the Psalms and Jeremiah to compare the nation of Israel, that all those passages compare the nation of Israel to a vineyard. The parables are designed generally to hide truth from people. It was only, the, even the disciples asked a lot of times, what does this parable mean? It was for those who had ears to hear it. But this parable was different. This parable was designed so that the leaders, the religious leaders who he was giving it to, would absolutely get it. He wanted them to understand this. Most parables are about the gospel, uh, some aspect of the kingdom of God. 
This parable, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, this parable is about judgment. That's what this parable is about. And according to verse 27, Jesus is talking to the very people who've determined to kill him. And there's no way the religious leaders can ultimately miss understanding this parable because it was, uh, it was based in history. Back in Isaiah, they knew Isaiah, they knew history. And I think we can even see the moment that it dawns on them that this is about them. Some of Jesus' parables have shocking parts to them. Uh, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, that was shocking to the Jews. When the father runs and embraces his reckless prodigal son who's wasted his inheritance, that was shocking to the Jewish people. Uh, this parable is genius on Jesus' part um, because he sucks the listeners in. It's like he traps them. There are no surprises in the life of Jesus. He's been saying for months what would happen to him. He said that he's going to be arrested <clears throat> and he's gonna be killed and he's gonna rise from the dead. He's been telling the disciples that. And this is exactly why Jesus came. He knew the details. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he knew that he would be mistreated. He knew that he was gonna be abused. And what captures the attention of the listeners is the outrageous behavior, first of the vine growers, the tenants, those who have rented the, 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 the vine, the, the vineyard, if you will, um, and, and the owner of the vineyard, because he keeps sending people back that keep being abused and, and, and even killed. So the parable gives us a grid through which we can see and need to see our lives, and we can learn some lessons here. So let's read the parable, starting in Mark chapter 12, verse one. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect, them, uh, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent, excuse me, then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has, there's a frog in there somewhere. 
<clears throat> Thank you. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is God's word for the people of God. So the first thing we see here, number one that you have on your outline, is the hope that God has for his people. Jesus begins by picturing God's hope for Israel as being like the hope of a man who built a vineyard and then waited expectantly for it to produce fruit. So what Jesus says in verse one is a quotation from Isaiah chapter five. And what Isaiah is saying is that he is warning them that judgment is coming. And specifically, he was talking about the Babylonian invasion where they came in and destroyed the temple, they killed many people, and they hauled the rest of them off into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. In Isaiah 5, uh, the vineyard just produces sour and inedible grapes, nothing of value. And so, uh, in Isaiah 5, God speaks in the first person. He says, what shall I do with my vineyard? I will destroy it, that's what he says. So if the religious leaders were really listening to Jesus, behind the lines, between the lines, if you will, as soon as he started talking about Isaiah chapter five, they would, they would know, they should have known, that he was talking about judgment. But they didn't get it, at least not right away. In verse one, what's added to the Isaiah text from Jesus is he said this man that planted the vineyard rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So the owner had done everything he needed to do to produce a crop. Look at verse one. He had put up a wall around it, he had dug a pit for the wine press, he had built the watchtower, he rented the vineyard out, and then he moved to another place. But he did everything, everything was done. This was all common practice, if you will. God's hope was like this man who had done everything he needed to do to produce a crop. And then the second thing we see, number two on the outline, <clears throat> is the kindness of God for his own people. God's patient love is seen in how he allows himself to be treated through his servants. Instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant and all the insults and all the beatings didn't stop him. And then God finally sends his own son. I, I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it, <clears throat> talking about God's persistence and the quotes on your outline. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. In verse two, <clears throat> at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So at this point, <clears throat> the religious leaders still haven't picked up on the judgment story from Isaiah. And that, that this is about them. 
But now the first shock comes. In verse three, they seized the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. What's happening here? This is ingratitude. This is cruel. This is illegal. These, these, what they're doing here is completely wicked. All they have to do is give the owner his share, and the rest is theirs. But instead, they take the servant, literally, they punch him and beat him and send him away in pain. That's what they're doing. And then verse 4. He sends another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. The self-righteous priests here must have been buzzing about the, idiot, the, the idiocy of this owner of this vineyard to keep sending these servants. And, and they must have been saying to themselves, what kind of horrible people would do this? What kind of ungrateful people are they? Not knowing that it's talking, they're talking about themselves. And he sent still another in verse 5, and this one they killed. And at the end of verse 5, he sent many others. Some of them they beat, some of them they killed. And first we think the behavior of the tenant farmer is outrageous, and now we begin to question the sanity of the owner. Why is the owner doing this? Why does he keep sending people who get beaten and killed? And then the situation becomes even more extreme in verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. And the people listening must have thought, no, don't send the son. He's the future of your family. He's the heir. Do not send your son. And this is beyond their comprehension. This is the ultimate shock of the entire story. And in verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is our heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, verse 8, and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Not even a burial. That would have been shocking to the Jews. Not even a burial. And if these religious leaders were shocked by the grace shown by the father to the prodigal son, then they were really shocked here. Totally shocked by the killers and by the landowner. And then Jesus asks the question in verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you do? There's been multiple murders. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds men's blood, <clears throat> by man shall his blood be shed. And so these men should die. At the end of verse 9, it says, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So this parable is also in Matthew and Luke. And it's helpful to read the parable in the different, uh, in, in, in those two gospels as well. And in the Matthew 21 parallel to this passage, <clears throat> the religious leaders get completely sucked in. And they respond and they say, the owner will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's what they say. Talking about themselves, but they don't know it yet. They still don't get it. But as soon as they say that, I, I think it's right there, as soon as those words come out of their mouths that they realize they've just condemned themselves. Because in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke chapter 20, it says when they heard it, they say, may it never be, meganoito in Greek, may it never be. And in the Mark passage, 
is where it dawns on him right here. Look at verse 12. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked away, looked for a way to arrest him because they knew at that moment that he had spoken the parable against them. That's when they got it. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They knew their history. It was unmistakable what Jesus was saying. They realized by condemning these murderers, they are condemning themselves. It's like they're saying, well, 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 wait a second. I I, I think we want to change our minds about how the story ends. The vine growers, the tenants, the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to God has given, and this is on your outline, God has given everything necessary, and this is the point, to the nation of Israel for them to make the world aware of who he is. That's what God, that's the history of the whole Old Testament. This is what's happening. They were stewards of God's revelation, of his truth. God had established Israel in the land and given them his law, and God had put, put, given them stewardship of all that and into their hands and specifically into the hands of the leaders of the nation. And had they succeeded? No. They had absolutely failed <clears throat> to do what God had given them to do. God had given them decades. God had given them centuries to do what he had asked them to do, and they didn't do it. And the servants that God sent, the Old Testament prophets, who faithfully preached the message of God, and what did the nation of Israel do to the prophets? You've got it listed right in front of you. Isaiah was sought in two, according to Justin Martyr. That's mentioned actually in Hebrews 11. Jeremiah was mistreated, and tradition says he was stoned to death. Ezekiel was murdered by an Israelite that he had properly rebuked. Amos had to run for his life. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple where he thought he'd be safe. Micah the prophet was constantly beat in the face. This is what it says in Hebrews 11 of these Old Testament prophets. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That's the history of the Jewish treatment of the messengers of God. They hadn't done a very good job with them, had they? Not at all. In Matthew 23, not too many hours after Jesus had given this parable, he pronounces a curse on the nation of Israel, specifically on the religious leaders. And you've got it on your outline. He says this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. And later in Mark, in in this chapter in Mark, look at verse 35. Jesus says of them, you killed the prophets and stoned God's messengers. And as a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time. (laughs) 
When Stephen preaches the great sermon, you remember Stephen in Acts 7? And what Stephen said, here's what he says in verses 51 and 52 of Acts 7. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. That's the son that was sent by the the owner of the vineyard they killed. They're talking about Jesus. It's, It's obviously Jesus, the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. This is the only son God had. He's the heir to the throne. And this is the parable. And Jesus tells his own murderers that they're gonna kill him. That's what he's telling them. It's it's like it says in verse seven, he's describing how they're gonna kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. And the Pharisees understood that Jesus was calling himself the son of God, God the son, and they refused to believe it. They didn't wanna believe it. God expresses his great, patient love through the prophets over and over and over again. Think of God's patience toward you and how patient God is with you and how before you came to faith in Christ, you rejected him. And maybe even after you came to faith in Christ, he's, he tries to get your attention to do what, you, what he wants you to do, to be obedient, and you're disobedient, and he's patient with you, and he gives you another opportunity, <clears throat> and another, and another. <clears throat> we can praise God for his patience for us. That God has a long fuse and a big heart. Otherwise, we'd all be in big trouble. And then in verse nine, we see number three, the severity of God. There's tremendous peril in remaining in opposition to Christ. The penalty is to be eternally separated from God in hell. That's what the Bible says. We don't like to talk about hell because we think people are gonna be offended. Maybe they are, maybe they should be. Uh, Hugh Latimer once preached a sermon in front of King Henry VIII, and King was very offended by what Hugh Latimer had said. And so he said, I want him to come back and preach again, and before he preaches, I want him to apologize for offending me, the king. So Hugh Latimer came back the next week to preach the sermon, and he said, here's how he started his sermon to the king the second week. He said, in speaking before my most excellent majesty who can take away my life if I offend him, I tell you, king, that more than, than you, I fear God who can cast my soul into hell, and so I cannot but continue to preach the same message that before offended you. And Latimer preached the exact same message that he had preached the week before, and everyone who knew him said he did it with phenomenal enthusiasm. (laughs) He didn't care about the king. He cared about his heavenly king and pleasing him. 
The Apostle Paul believed the same thing, and he says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. Are you ready to face God? As believers, we have nothing to fear. But I know that all of us here have family and we have friends that are not ready to face God. <clears throat> and I think this parable gives us a, 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 a warning, a, a sense of urgency that we should have as we share Christ. And yes, we, we do it in a way that is, is sensitive. We wanna be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We wanna walk not a step ahead, not a step behind of the, of the Holy Spirit. Someone said, if the fruit is not ready to fall off the tree, don't bruise it. And so we keep praying for an opportunity. We pray for open doors. We pray for clarity in presenting the message. We pray for boldness. That's what Paul asked prayer for in Ephesians 6, 19. He said to the Ephesians, pray that I would be bold in in being able to share the gospel. We need to pray that for ourselves. And then in verse nine, it says, he will come to kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? Who gets the vineyard? Well, the answer is in the Matthew passage of this parable, Matthew 21, it it, it, it says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jesus is, is speaking, and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. So who is that? It's the apostles. The next day of Holy Week is Thursday and Jesus tells the 12 disciples in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and lead them into all truth. And what do they do? They write the New Testament. They and their associates. And and what happens in the early church in Acts chapter two? They gather to study what the apostles wrote. The New Testament And the stewardship passes on from the apostles to the church, to us. We are the new nation. We're to be faithful now, and we have King Jesus as the head of our family. We have him as our head. And so we respond to the gospel. And and this parable is a reminder that we need to live lives that are responsive to God. So are you living a life that is responsive to God? When you read the word and you say, wow, here's something I need to obey in the word, are you being obedient to the word? That's what he wants us to do, to follow him, to listen to what he says and to do what he says. Jesus said, if you, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So we call him Lord, and now we need to be obedient to him. And that leads us to number four on the outline, the ultimate triumph of God in history. Verse 10, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so on your outline, you have this. These verses describe the triumph that would accompany God's judgment. Jesus is the cornerstone of the eternal, in the eternal spiritual temple of God. And he's quoting Psalm 118, which would have, they would have already been singing because that was the, that was the, the song of Passover. 
These were the psalms that were, this was the psalm primarily, but other psalms as well that were in their minds. In fact, remember <clears throat> when they came in and Jesus was riding on a donkey, what did they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where's that from? Psalm 118. And then again in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. And so the cornerstone <clears throat> goes in the corner. It, it's, it's, it's the most important part of the building. It has to be a perfect stone for all the other stones to be lined up in the right way. It's the large stone that forms the foundation. It, it has to be perfect for the whole building or the whole building is off. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's perfect. And we're the other stones. We're lined up in there. Peter talks about that. But Psalm 118 is about the Messiah. And, and you have this on your outline. His life and teaching would be the church's foundation because he's the cornerstone. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, are we aligned with Jesus? That's one of the reasons I love combing our way through the gospel of Mark because we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're seeing how, how our lives line up with his. And do you remember in Acts chapter four, Peter preaching, and he quotes the same passage in, in, first, in, in, in Acts four. Peter and John had been arrested for teaching people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. And the next day, Peter explains to the religious leaders that, that he, they'd healed someone in, in Acts chapter four. And in, in, in verse 10, he says, let me clearly state to all of you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the power, powerful name of Jesus, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one who is referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone, here it is, same passage from Psalm 118, the stone that you builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. There is salvation now in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You know, some of you <clears throat> I know know the story of Nabil Qureshi. If you've never read the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, I warmly recommend that you read that book. Show of hands, how many of you have read that book? Boy, if you haven't read that book, borrow it from someone who raised their hands and, uh, and read it, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, he was raised a Muslim and by the age of five had read the entire Quran in Arabic and memorized large parts of, a, of the Quran. Um, while he was a college student in Virginia, he saw a fellow student, David Wood, reading the Bible in his spare time. And he started conversations with David Wood. And they had a lot of debates. Some of those debates lasted for years. And uh, they, they became very close friends. And his friend, David, challenged him to examine the claims of Christ. And Nabil became convinced that Muhammad was not the greatest of the prophets and that Jesus was God, the Son. And here's what Nabil Qureshi writes about his journey. He says this, I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. 
Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened up the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Electric, the words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus, uh, which, which taught me that I must love God more than my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verse spoke to me saying, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It's a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in this world, my mother and father, were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption, he writes. He redeemed sinners to life by his death, and he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for every, my every moment, bending my heart toward him. It was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. He reached me through investigation and called me to prayer in my suffering. It was there that I found Jesus. To follow him is worth giving up everything. And that's what this parable is about. These religious leaders were not responsive to God. Nabil responded to God's goodness because he was broken by God's grace. And he gave God glory by receiving his son. So what about you? Are you ready to get the glory to God? Are you ready to respond to him, to his goodness and his grace? For the religious leaders of Israel, it was all about them. They lost sight of what God had for them to do. Instead of loving God, they loved themselves. It was all about them. The entire parable is of the religious leaders not acting for God and for his glory. They didn't, they didn't and we have to learn from their failure. So just to conclude, I want to jump ahead to Mark 10 just for a moment and, and Bartimaeus. Remember Bartimaeus who was healed by Jesus? And then what does Bartimaeus do? He gets up and follows Jesus. So in response to being healed, that's what he does. And so I don't, he takes the next step. I don't know what the next step is for you, but I know that all of us here have a next step. What is the next step for you? Uh, maybe it's to accept Christ into your life. Maybe it's to, to be baptized and follow him publicly. 
Maybe it's to forgive someone that you need to forgive and you have been holding on to it. Maybe it's spending time regularly in the word and in prayer. Maybe it's saying, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a member of Claremont Emanuel. I'm gonna take a step in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. I need to, to join a small group. Whatever it is, maybe I need to invite a friend to church. Whatever the next step is for you, take the next step. And then this is on on your outline. God will never be finished taking you deeper in the faith. There's always a next step. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Whatever the next step is for us, Lord, I pray that we would be able to do it because faith is action, faith is movement. James said if people say they have faith but do nothing, their faith is worth nothing. Father, you've given us this amazing opportunity right now, and so I pray that everyone here would determine what the next step is for them and they would not let this opportunity pass them by. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. But now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day, and we'll see those who have signed up tonight.